From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hi, my name is Tasmi Anishat, and I'll be your host for this week's episode of Terra Informa, bringing you news from across Canada and around the world. This week on Terra Informa, we have a story on exposing practices of factory farms. And then after that, an archive episode of Science Faction. Before we get into any of the stories though, here's this week's headlines. Ackland's Granger Inc. pleaded guilty in the Provincial Court of Alberta for contravening the ozone depleting substances regulations. The company was fined $500,000, an amount which will be directed to the Environmental Damages Fund. Acting on information uncovered by the Intelligence Division within Environmental and Climate Change Canada, or ECC, enforcement officers conducted an investigation into Ackland Granger's Inc.'s sale of aerosol products containing hydrochlorofluorocarbons, or HCFCs, a prohibited ozone-depleting substance. Some facts are that HCFCs are mainly used for foam blowing, refrigeration, and air conditioning solvent cleaning, and to a lesser extent, aerosols and fire protection. Ozone depletion is a term commonly used to describe the thinning of the Earth's ozone layer, which acts as a natural filter, absorbing most of the sun's ultraviolet rays. The Environmental Damages Fund is administered by Environment and Climate Change Canada. Created in 1995, it provides a way to direct funds received as a result of fines, court orders, and voluntary payments to projects that will benefit the natural environment. As a result of this conviction, Ackland's Granger Inc. will be added to the Environmental Offenders Registry. Another company that was pleaded guilty to environmental crimes is Wabush Mines, and they have two offenses under the Fisheries Act in violation of the Metal Mining Effluent Regulations. The offenses took place in May 2015. The court ordered a total penalty of $30,000, of which $25,000 will be directed to the Environmental Damages Fund. I guess it's been a month for environmental fines, Our last item in our headlines is Barrier Group Inc. being fined a total of $200,000 for environmental violations that occurred at fish processing facilities in Whitless Bay and Port de Grave, Newfoundland and Labrador. During the inspection of the Whitless Bay and Port de Grave operations, officers observed workers dumping crab waste outside of the authorized disposal zone. Canada has a permit system to control disposal of waste or other matter into the ocean. Only a small list of wastes or other matter can be considered for permits, and these are individually assessed to ensure that disposal at sea is the environmentally preferable and practical alternative. There's a memorable scene in the Simpsons movie, where a fish emerges out of a pig waste lake with three eyes. Unfortunately, pig waste lakes are not just the stuff of cartoons, and they affect not only the development of cartoon fish, but the air quality of real people who live near these pig farms. I came across animal rights activist Mark Devery's work on my Facebook feed, specifically his work using drones to expose pig waste lakes. We discussed that and his film Speciesism, which discusses the practices of factory farming more broadly. you want to talk about your movie and what went into it? So an increasing number of philosophers and scientists are arguing that our unthinking assumption that that non-human animals... Uh, don't really matter ethically. They argue that that may be a form of prejudice, similar to prejudices against groups of humans, like racism and sexism. So they've popularized the term speciesism to describe this overlooked assumption that non-human animals don't really matter ethically. They argue that the 
basic ethical principles that we hold among humans, such as that causing harm, causing suffering, all else being equal is a bad thing, should extend to members of other species, to non-human animals, precisely because they are capable of suffering. All of the evidence suggests as strongly, as intensely as human beings can. And as a result, they argue that this prejudice, speciesism, this assumption that non-human animals don't matter ethically may reflect one of the most serious ethical issues of our time, considering that billions of animals spend their entire lives on factory farms where they're made to suffer intensely and, of course, treated brutally, such as being bred to grow so quickly that they uh, are in constant pain because their bodies, as is often said, are on the verge of structural collapse. Uh, animals who have their tails cut off or their testicles sliced out with no painkillers. Practices like these that are routine in the factory farming industry would be one of the very most significant ethical issues of our time. So my documentary, Speciesism, the movie, seeks to investigate those philosophical questions, those really fundamental questions that, if there is something to the argument in question, would mean that we have to significantly change our view of the world. I heard about your work through a video I found on my Facebook feed. I was wondering if you could, yeah. could talk about um, how you started this project. So when I was working on Speciesism, the movie, I visited eastern North Carolina to speak with neighbors who are affected by these giant industrial hog farms that are polluting the air and water there, uh, making them ill and severely affecting the quality of their lives. And I was quite shocked by what I learned from them in terms of how these giant pig farms with thousands of pigs in close confinement and open-air cesspools of pig manure that are sometimes several acres being placed near their home. I flew in airplanes overhead to zoom in with a camera that I was holding and look at the scale of these facilities and how close they are to people's homes. And during a preview screening of speciesism, uh, a friend of mine mentioned that I might also be able to use drones to document factory farms. So I got drones and started filming some of these same pig facilities in North Carolina. And being able to fly low overhead allows us to convey to the public just how massive and environmentally destructive and dangerous these facilities really are. Have you run into any legal trouble with that? Since I did the drone filming in North Carolina, a law happened to be passed making drone surveillance illegal in that state. And interestingly, an earlier version of the law specifically referenced drone surveillance of agricultural facilities, and then the final version generalized it, which seems to indicate what interests are behind passing these types of laws. In the trailer, speaking with you know former pig farmers and also residents affected by the pig waste lakes, can you talk about what you learned from them? 
essentially animals today are no longer raised on farms as most of us perceive of them. They are raised on giant industrial factories owned or contracted out by a small number of major corporations. And these factories hold thousands often of animals in tightly controlled conditions where the air, the temperature, and so forth is regulated for maximum productivity, sort of like some sort of science fiction dystopia. And in the case of these pig farms in particular, the waste from these thousands of animals falls through slats in the concrete floors, feces and urine falls through, and it's flushed into giant vestibules that are often several acres and can have millions of gallons of waste. So they're literally the size of multiple football fields, and they're open air, and the waste is flushed right into them. And this pig waste is, in terms of its toxic smell, somewhat similar to human waste. So if you can imagine having a giant open cesspool of human sewage built just upwind of your home, you can imagine how this affects these people's lives. And not surprisingly, they're often built in poor communities where people don't have political resources and therefore really are lacking a voice and find themselves uh, in a situation where they feel powerless to do anything about these facilities moving in. And it often lowers their property values so that they can't move out um, because no one will buy their home and they can't afford to sell it for a low price and leave. And so the, the, the odor intermittently just coming into people's homes is so overwhelming just at random points throughout the day or even at night that, for example, an elderly man I spoke with said he sometimes would walk out of his house and fall down in his front yard because he could not breathe because the stench was so overwhelming. And these specific health problems are documented now in terms of, for example, spikes in blood pressure, uh, perhaps in large part relating to the uh, emotional impact of having these, these sudden fumes and um, increases in asthma rates among school children in schools nearby these facilities. So these are remarkably serious and very often overlooked by environmentalists and the public at large, health consequences and terrible consequences for large numbers of people living in these areas, just in terms of it largely destroying their everyday lives. What kind of, um, like, protests are going on? Well, in my understanding right now, the state statutory law doesn't really provide anything to enforce any mitigation, any significant mitigation of these practices. But as of relatively recently, some neighbors have gotten together with a group of environmentally and socially concerned uh, attorneys, and they're seeking to bring suits based upon nuisance law. And nuisance law, of course, nuisance sounds relatively insignificant because the, the word nuisance is usually loosely used, 
in the legal sense, they can be very significant disruptions to people's lives, like these facilities. So one of the major potentially promising avenues for combating the impacts of these facilities and holding these companies responsible is these nuisance cases. So we're all waiting to see how they turn out and therefore whether this approach can be expanded upon around North Carolina and in other states. That was me speaking with Mark Jeffries. Stay tuned for Science Faction coming up next. Science Faction is a show about unbelievable discoveries. Science Faction! You're listening to Science Faction. Today on Science Faction, we're bringing you a story about fish that can walk. Fish that can leave the water and live on land, at least for a while. I'm Dalal. I'm Andrea. This is Fish with Feet. Science Faction 101. We speak in the thousand most used words. The researchers we talk to don't. These thousand words come from the Upgur Five Text Editor, made by scientist Theo Sanderson. <laughs> Theo Sanderson. We build on these accepted words using prefixes and suffixes, and we allow the use of numbers and names, from the names of people and places to the names of life forms and scientific fields. We see these few little exceptions as key to bringing you stories factually and informatively. And now for the show. To tell this story right, we've got to start at a moment many years ago. A time so long ago, there were no four-legged animals living on land. No mice, no dogs, no monkeys, no humans, who are, in a sense, a four-legged animal. But in the water, which at that time covered even more of the Earth than it does today, there were fish. Lots of fish. We don't often think of these legless, cold-blooded animals as our relatives, but most scientists agree that prehistoric fish are what gave rise to the first four-legged animals. It's the little flippers of fish that helped them raise themselves out of the water and that slowly transformed into legs and arms for getting around on land. Somewhere between 375 to 360 million years ago, the fish, Ichthyostega, thought to be one of the first four-legged animals walked out of water onto land. Why, you might be wondering, would a fish leave underwater to live on land? Why leave their safe and sound home for the complete unknown? Well, it turns out the water wasn't so safe and sound for all fish. If you think about way, way back in the day when there were just vertebrates, just fish swimming around in the ocean, and they were competing with each other. Some were eating each other. It was a bit of a scary place. There were really big predators eating little fishes. And so if there was some way that you could get out of the water onto land, A, to get away from the big mean fish that are trying to eat you, and B, to eat all those delicious insects that no one else was eating, you would have a huge advantage. That is the lively voice of our in-house specialist on today's show. I am Emily Standen, and I'm a new professor at Ottawa U in Ottawa, Canada. Dr. Standen, Emily, has been fixated on fish since she was a kid. Emily studies how and why fish move. 
Well, I am an evolutionary biomechanist, and what that means is I look at how animals move, and so uh, I really wanted to know how did those first fish, way back in the day, actually use their fins to crawl out and explore land? And it made me start to think, well, how would you take a fin and use it in a totally new context? Like, for instance, on land. This question is at the heart of today's show. At some point, fish made the move from water to land, and their flippers gave way to what we now call arms and legs. The more arm-like and leg-like flippers became, the better those early land animals could get around on land. Those animals that suit that environment perfectly and can survive and reproduce really well in that environment will reproduce, and their babies will look like them, and they'll reproduce, and they'll reproduce, and so you get all of these animals that match their environment. These ideas are all based on the early founding work of naturalist Charles Darwin. Evolution is the process where animals change over time because of their environments. So as environments change, animals change. The way that living things look is largely based on the biological information they get from their parents. The passing on of information from parents to baby was discovered by plant lover Gregor Mendel in the 1800s, who ran simple experiments on pea plants. He showed that the way that parent plants look, their color and their form, decide the looks of their offspring. And for a long time, scientists thought that's all there was to it. But we're learning that there's a lot more at play here. We all have a genome which is a genetic code that tells us how we're going to be. But for every genetic code, there are multiple actual phenotypes, which is just how you look, so different morphologies that can come out of the same genetic code. In other words, the same biological information can be expressed in many different ways. Phenotypic plasticity is really just um, the number of different ways you can look with the same genetic material. Often environment influences that. An easy way to think about this is how we behave in response to our surroundings. Humans do this. Today it was really cold, so when I left my house this morning, I put on a whole bunch of jackets, my toque, my scarf, everything, so that I would be warm. So my environment, i.e. it's really cold outside, made me change my behavior and I put on a whole bunch of clothes. This type of response to a surrounding is important in understanding how and why fish made the shift from water to land. Because we were interested in the fin-to-limb transition and, and really, really interested in how fins might be used on land, we needed an animal that uh, was similar to what those ancient animals might have looked like, like the fish before they got out on land. And so we looked down the tree of fishes. There's a big tree of fish, thousands of species, and we walked all the way down to the bottom of it and found the first possible ancestor to all of those, which is Polypterus. It's living. Polypterus senegalis, big name. It just means multi-fins or multi-wings. And uh, it's an African fish. It comes from the Nile Basin, and it's freshwater. They also conveniently have lungs. Even if they spend almost all of their time in water, they have the ability to live outside of it. We chose them because they have a very similar morphology to some of the fossil fishes that we think were the first to crawl out on land. Emily wanted to know if she could bring about the same changes in these fish that their far-off relatives first underwent when they moved onto land. 
If she raised Polypterus on land, would they become better walkers than if they grew up in the water? This question is important because it tells us if changes within one animal's lifetime, caused by its immediate surroundings, can lead to long-lasting changes. The kind of changes that do get passed on from parents to offspring through biological information. Could it have been in part through this type of change that fish shifted to four-legged animals? Emily's team wanted to know the answer to this very question, so they came up with a simple but smart experiment using a bunch of polypterus. It was 150 fish in total. We ordered the polypterus. You can get them from the pet trade, which is great because you're not pulling animals from the wild. These are bred in captivity. They were roughly 60 to 70 days at that point old and, and about five to six centimeters long. So they were tiny, tiny guys. So they took these 150 babies and broke them into two groups. 75 of them were raised in water and the other half on land, allowing her to test for differences in their walking abilities. We put them in aquariums that were moist, but didn't have enough water for them to float. And then, you know when you go to the grocery store and sometimes you're picking out your lettuce and the misters come on, you get a bit wet? And we had salad misters on the fish at all times so that they were always wet and moist. Because although these guys can breathe air and be on land, they need to stay very moist. So salad misters with a little skim of water, happy as clams those fish were. Emily and her team then took care of these fish in their new homes for the better part of a year to get them used to their surroundings. Then they could start asking the questions that interested them. So we wanted to know two things. We wanted to know, did their walking change because they were raised on land? And did their swimming change because they were raised on land? So is there a trade-off there? Do you get really good at walking, but then you lose some ability in swimming or vice versa? And that's a really interesting idea because maybe the ways in which the fish could change to become better walkers would make them worse at getting around in water. To answer the first of their questions, did their walking change? They had to get the fish to walk. We asked the fish, very politely, if they would walk uh, across just a, a regular substrate. And so we asked them to walk across that and film them using high-speed video uh, from a couple of angles so that we could see how their fins moved in three dimensions. We measured things like how high did they lift their heads and how fast did they move their fins and and when did they plant their fins and when how did they support themselves as they used that fin to step. And then we also uh, filmed them swimming. They watched and walked these fish for months. And the whole time you don't know. You don't know whether there's differences until you get to do the comparison and do the math. We might not be able to just look at the fish and know that these differences are there, but they would greatly change their ability to walk or move through water. That was part one of the study. And then the second thing we looked at was their anatomy. So um, the fish were put into a micro CT scanner and we visualized the bones that support the pectoral fin. The pectoral fin is the fin at the front. So we wanted to see all the bones that support that fin. The researchers expected to see differences in the bodies of land and water fish because of how different their surroundings were. When you think about two different habitats, water and land, the, the major difference is gravity. If you're raised on land and you spend all of your time walking around fighting gravity, 
does that change how your bones develop and grow? And when we tested them, they actually showed great differences. So, so the fish that were raised on land, they walked more effectively. What this actually means is that they could see a number of differences in the way land and water fish walked. The land fish planted their fins closer to their bodies, which allowed them to lift their heads higher off the ground. And then as they stepped over their fin, it slipped less. And in terms of their bodies, fish don't have necks. They don't really need them. So in water, when you're feeding, it's really easy. You can approach your food from any angle, and it's great. You just move your body behind you, no big deal. But once on land, then you're stuck on that two-dimensional plate. You need to be able to move your neck to get at your food. You need to be able to bend a bit. The shoulder, which in fish is joined right to the head, got smaller and less strong, making space for the eventual formation of a neck. And what's amazing about this is that it's close to what we saw in the past when fish first moved out of water onto land. Indeed, when you look at the fossil record, that's one of the things that happens in these skeletons of fish moving into tetrapods, that their neck starts to develop. The changes in the bones that we see in our terrestrial polypterus mirror the changes you see in the animals that make the, the progression onto land. Emily and her team's work is the first study to show how individual animals' responses to their surroundings within their lifetime can change the course of animal history. The passing on of parent to offspring biological information is not the only means that might have led life from water onto land. This is the first study that shows that plasticity might give us some insight into macroevolutionary changes. The big question that's left is whether this sort of within-lifetime response to surroundings will be, or was, passed on to kids. Will the offspring of the new landfish also be better walkers? Not if the offspring weren't on land as well. Without the presence of new surroundings, this ability is likely lost. I would not think that 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 would then be assimilated into the genome and passed on to the young immediately. Because the environment is inducing that plastic response, it's not because it's genetically locked in yet. It might be more of a matter of time. And really, the only way to know this is to study the offspring of these polypterists. Which seems to be where this research is now heading. We're excited to see where this story about our past can take our future. What new doors this science will open. Science does all sorts of amazing things for us. It makes our medicine better. It builds our technologies better. It, it helps us be you know, better societies and better humans. But it's also just really interesting. And I think the more we know about the animals that surround us and the animals we once were back in evolutionary time, the more we have a, an understanding of the planet as, in, as a whole. And I think that sort of broadening of, of the mind is it just important, particularly when we face modern challenges. You know, we just have to think we're not the only ones here. If we understand how things change, we may be able to foresee how different things are going to change as the planet shifts and changes. Hi, I'm producer Nick Schofield. Thanks for listening to episode five of Science Faction, Fish with Feet. We're done for now, but we do want to hear from you. Get in touch with us on Twitter at SciFactRadio. And search for us on Facebook. 
Science Faction is Dalal Hanna and Andrea Reed with sounds and music made by Nick Schofield and is supported by Jeanne Valentin. Visit us online at sciencefaction.ca. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks again. And that's all the time we have for this week's show. I want to thank Shelley Jodwin for coordination and Lauren Carter for website and production. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at terra at cgsr.com or tweet us at Terra Informa. 